Hey everybody, Aaron Bishop here. Just wanted to let you know, I have written a book. It has been published and it is available now on Amazon.com. Name of the book is The Power of Passover, A Christian's Guide to the Festival of Redemption. If you want to know what Passover is about, just a really deep dive into the festival, into its history, and into why we're where we're at today. And even an instruction guide on how to hold your own Passover. It's got everything in it. So if you'd like to check that out, go to Amazon.com and search for The Power of Passover. And now we return you to your regularly scheduled program. I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we use symbols presented in Scripture to better understand our own role in relationship to God. Well, this week we're in Exodus 19, and Israel is there. They have made it to the mountain of Hashem. Now, as I stated last week, Israel will be stationed here until Numbers 9, which we won't get to for nearly another year. And interestingly enough, the time it took to build the tabernacle and receive the handbook of worship that we call Leviticus also took nearly a full year. Now, we will, over the course of the next year, be exploring all that happened in the nation of Israel in their year at the base of Mount Sinai. And mixed into this, there will be very few narratives. In fact, this week is the last real narrative of any length that we're going to read until chapter 24, which we'll get to in about a month. After that, it will be another month and a half before we get to the next narrative in chapter 32. Due to this, our focus and our way of reading and talking about the text is going to change. Instead of speaking of people and events, we'll be exploring instructions and lists of what we call laws. And we're going to get into what the Torah was for an ancient people what it was for our Messiah, and what it should be for us today. But this week we're going to encounter a few interesting connections and allusions that will teach us more about coming into relationship with the Most High God of heaven and earth, and what that means for us as humans. For where is it that Israel has arrived? It's not a trick question, it's Mount Sinai. And where is Mount Sinai? Well, this one might be a trick question. It's in the middle of a wilderness. A harsh land where no one could live for any extended period of time without assistance from God himself. Now as we come to this chapter and the upcoming chapters, let's not lose sight of this. The existence of the mountain of God in the midst of a wilderness is a direct pointer to the holy, set-apart nature of the God of creation. You see, one thing that we're going to see later in Scripture is that one of God's primary characteristics is one of holiness, set-apartness. Why would the God of all creation put his mountain in the middle of nowhere? Well, we're going to see the answer to that this week. It is holy ground. And 
a human encroaching on holy space without proper cleansing, protocol, and an invitation from God himself is inviting death on himself. And we see this reflected throughout the Torah. Nadav and Avihu will be killed in Leviticus 10 because they did not approach Hashem in the right protocol. The 250 men who challenged the legitimacy of the Levites in number 16 during the rebellion of Korah are destroyed because they were not invited into God's presence. Uzzah, who died when he touched the Ark of the Covenant in 2 Samuel 6, died because he was not invited, he was not consecrated, or even able to touch the Ark without God's holiness simply overriding the life that was in him. And that's going to be the backdrop of everything that we're about to discuss. Hashem's nature of holiness makes it difficult for us to be in relationship with Him, because we are not holy by our nature. And so steps must be taken. And yet God wants to be in relationship with mankind, despite the separation that his holiness naturally creates. And so this week we're going to read only the beginning of a ceremony of covenant between Hashem and Israel. And the language and the events of this chapter demonstrate that this covenant is a very specific type of covenant. Hashem wants to take Israel to himself in a very close and intimate way. So let's read this week's passage and then talk more about the marriage covenant that's present in this and the upcoming chapters and discover what this outlook can teach us about our own relationship with him. Exodus 19 In the third new moon after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Mitzrayim, on this day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. For they set out from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moshe went up to Elohim, and Hashem called to him from the mountain, saying, This is what you are to say to the house of Yaakov, to declare to the children of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Mitzrites, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And now, if you diligently obey my voice and shall guard my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession above all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a reign of priests and a set-apart nation. Those are the words which you are to speak to the children of Israel. And Moshe came and called for the elders of the people, and set before them all these words which Hashem commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that Hashem has spoken we shall do. So Moshe brought back the words of the people to Hashem. And Hashem said to Moshe, See, I am coming to you in the thick cloud, so that the people hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. And Moshe reported the words of the people to Hashem. And Hashem said to Moshe, Go to the people, and set them apart today and tomorrow, and they shall wash their garments, and shall be prepared by the third day, for on the third day Hashem shall come down upon Mount Sinai before the eyes of all the people, and you shall make a border for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves, that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall certainly be put to death. Not a hand is to touch it, but he shall certainly be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the Yovel sounds long, let them come near the mountain. And Moshe came down from the mountain to the people, and set the people apart, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be prepared by the third day, do not come near a wife. And it came to be on the third day in the morning, that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the voice of a shofar was very strong, and all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moshe brought the people out of the camp to meet with Elohim, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. And Mount Sinai was in smoke, all of it, because Hashem descended upon it in fire, 
and its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and all the mountain trembled exceedingly. And when a voice of the shofar sounded long and became very strong, Moshe spoke, and Elohim answered him by voice. And Hashem came down upon Mount Sinai, on the top of the mountain, and Hashem called Moshe to the top of the mountain, and Moshe went up. And Hashem said to Moshe, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through unto Hashem, to see, and many of them fall. And let the priests who come near Hashem set themselves apart too, lest Hashem break out against them. And Moshe said to Hashem, The people are not able to come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Make a border around the mountain and set it apart. And Hashem said to him, Come, go down, and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to Hashem, lest he break out against them. And Moshe went down to the people and spoke to them. Now for many of us, when we look to Scripture, we recognize that the concept of covenant is one that's vitally important to our understanding of what is being said. It's all too easy to simply stop at the realization of the importance of covenant without further understanding. But if we dig just a bit further, we will discover that there are in the Torah two types of covenant language used to describe the relationship between Hashem and Israel. One is the type of covenant that's created between a high king, a, a king of kings, or as it was known in the ancient Near East, a suzerain king and his vassals. This type of covenant was one that was extremely common in the ancient Near East, and the entire book of Deuteronomy is steeped in the suzerain-vassal treaty language. We are going to dig a lot deeper into this type of covenant relationship and the implications of this type of relationship when we get to the book of Deuteronomy. But beginning here and lasting through the remainder of the book of Exodus, a different type of covenant is being described and explored. This is the marriage covenant, and it's this type of covenantal relationship that we will be speaking on today. And it's this type of covenant that will be implicit in the background of everything we talk about for the remainder of the book of Exodus. In fact, I suspect that if we understood the ancient Near East view on marriage covenant from a first-hand standpoint, rather than a standpoint that's 3,400 years separate and composed of a vastly different culture, I suspect that we would find marriage language spread throughout the book of Exodus from one end to the other. Unfortunately, we don't understand ancient Near East marriage rights nearly as well as we would like to. All we can do is take what we do know and apply it to the text and discover what fits. And as we're going to see shortly, these upcoming chapters are all saturated with the language of a marriage covenant. The idea of the relationship between God and men is one that has been used over and over. And for all intents and purposes, it begins here. But before we get too deep into this, there are several other things that are of great import that I would like to cover that are spoken of in this chapter. So let's hit some highlights and then return to this topic. So as the chapter opens, we read that it was in the third month that Israel came to camp at the foot of Mount Sinai in the wilderness of Sinai. Now, this pointer gives us reason to believe that the arrival at Mount Sinai is, in fact, a continuation of the spring holiday calendar. I mean, let's review. It began with Passover, when Israel was set free from Egypt. Chag Sameach Pesach, by the way. I know that this episode is being released the day after the last day of Matzah, uh, but it is being recorded during the week of Matzah. So, Chag Sameach, everyone. Uh, it then continued with the first fruits at the Sea of Reeds. And then the last day of Matzah, and at the oasis of Elim with its twelve springs and its seventy trees. Now, after matzah, Israel spent some time wondering, and then around the 30th day, they run out of food. Now, 
It's thought that this event is commemorated in Lagaba Omer, or the 33rd day of the count of the Omer from first fruits until Shavuot. After this, in the third month, is Shavuot. Now, Shavuot, or Pentecost as it's known in the Greek, will always be on a Sunday. But the day of the Hebrew month will slide from year to year. It's kind of like Thanksgiving that way. And I suspect that's why the day, the date, is never mentioned in this chapter, as has been before. This day we usually approach as the day of giving the law on Mount Sinai, and as the New Testament corollary, as the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the apostles in the first century. If we recognize the events of Mount Sinai as a marriage, maybe we should celebrate this date as an anniversary, the day that God enters into covenant with his people. And how does God celebrate this day? He gives gifts. Here on Mount Sinai, God gives the gift of instruction through the creation of a ketuvah, or a marriage contract. And at Pentecost, God gives the gift of his presence and his spirit to accompany us in our lives. Now, the Torah is certainly a good gift given by a great God, but frankly, having the gift of the Holy Spirit is a greater gift than many of us appreciate when we come to an understanding of the applicability of the Torah. But they both demonstrate one single truth to us. It's a truth that's declared in verse 5. If you diligently obey, you will become his treasured possession above all others. After all, the entire earth and all that's in it belongs to Hashem. But those who enter into this covenant, they become special to him. And a result of entering into this covenant is that we as a people will be built into a kingdom of priests. We will become a holy nation. A holy nation. A holy nation can perhaps enter into a marriage relationship with a holy God. And a royal priesthood, that reminds me of something else. It's not an exact match, but we read of something similar on at least two other occasions. Kings and priests. It's recounted for us in Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And they sang a renewed song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain and have redeemed us to Elohim by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign upon the earth. Not a kingdom of priests, but kings and priests. Now this status as kings and priests was hinted at in Genesis 2 when Adam was given the task to work in Hashem's garden. This is something we're going to get into in about uh, two months, two and a half months, when we're talking about the tabernacle, in fact. But Peter also uses this language in 1 Peter 2, 9-10. through And in this passage, he combines this declaration with many other prophetic passages. So 1 Peter 2, 9-10 through says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for a possession, that you should proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of Elohim, who had not obtained compassion, but now obtained compassion. Now, Peter uses this idea and he combines it with Deuteronomy, several places in Isaiah, as well as several places in Hosea. This idea is reflected in the pages of Scripture in many hundreds of different ways that all point us to this truth. The goal of the covenant is to create a people who can live in the image of God and act as a priest to the nations and vassals to the high king of all creation.
But this gift and opportunity is not extended first to kings. It's extended here. It's extended first to slaves. This chapter is also the first time that we read the metaphor being born on eagles' wings that's used throughout Scripture to speak of God delivering His people. This metaphor is a semi-regular occurrence in Scripture, which also finds its final use in the book of Revelation in chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 14, it says, And the woman was given two wings of a great eagle to fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Now, we should understand when we see this metaphor, it's not speaking of an escape that occurs on airplanes, as some modern interpretations would have us believe. <coughs> Behind. <clears throat> no. No, rather, it's recalling the miraculous escape from Egypt. Let's not read too much into this metaphor. It's just that. It's a metaphor. It's a symbol. And one that we don't have near enough data to nail down any better than it's a God-ordained miraculous escape. Now, verse 9, Hashem speaks to Moses and declares to him what is about to occur. He says, I am coming in the thick cloud so that the people hear when I speak with you and so that they will believe you. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say so that they'll believe you. It specifically says so that they will believe in you. And once again, just as in chapter 14, we see this phrase, believe in, used to refer to Moses. And once again, we can understand that this phrase, believe in, as used in the New Testament, is not speaking of simple intellectual assent. It's not speaking of holding a certain idea about certain facts but rather it's a phrase that speaks of believing that someone is as special as they claim to be. It's God's ultimate confirmation of his authority. It, it is God himself giving witness on behalf of his chosen servant that he has entrusted his word and his image with that servant. And once again, this is something that we see occur over and over in Scripture. Specifically in the baptism of Yeshua in Mark 1.11, Matthew 3.17, and Luke 3.22, alongside the Holy Spirit descending upon Yeshua. Anybody want to guess what holiday contains the same imagery of this event, the Holy Spirit descending down upon people? It's Shavuot, with the Spirit falling upon the disciples. But in this instance of the baptism, there's no cloud present. There's only a voice. And the specific language that is used in these passages is that the heavens were opened in all three books. Now, there's no mention of clouds in the baptism narrative. Now, there is another time that a similar event happens in the life of Yeshua, though. We see the same thing occur, this time in a cloud on top of a mountain, a mountain we call the Mount of Transfiguration. And it happens in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. But this event is also not the last time that we see this happen in the life of Yeshua. We see it again in John 12, 27 through 30. It says, Now I myself am troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this reason I came to this hour. Father, honor your name. Then a voice came from the heavens. I have both honored it and shall honor it again. So the crowd who stood by and heard it were saying, that there had been thunder, and others said, A messenger has spoken of him. Yeshua answered and said, The voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. 
this voice from the heaven speaking about both Moses and Yeshua was accomplished, not for the sake of Moses or for the sake of Yeshua, but so that those who heard the voice might believe in, and that this belief might last into eternity. The voice of God is a powerful thing. It is the cause of creation and the most powerful thing in all of creation. His decrees are not to be dismissed or shuffled aside. In verse 12 through 15, we read of the commands that were given and obeyed in the camp of Israel that demonstrate Hashem's holiness on the earth. No one can come near the mountain without death as a result. We see here a kind of kingly holiness on display. Interestingly enough, we get a picture of this type of holiness in the human realm in the book of Esther. What was it that Esther was afraid of when she was preparing to go before her husband, the king? That he might kill her because she had not been summoned. And how did she prepare for this unexpected audience that might mean her death? Three days of fasting and preparation. This type of kingly holiness was not unexpected or unheard of in the ancient world. In fact, it was to be expected. So while this chapter does have the setup of a wedding that's being prepared, it's not losing sight of the sovereign nature of the groom. You see, this is not just any wedding that's being recorded here. It is a king marrying his princess. It's the wedding in every Disney princess movie all rolled together and multiplied by infinity. This is the royal wedding of the ages. And so it is that the ceremony begins. And it's here that we'll return back to the main topic for this lesson. Now, the concept that I'm teaching right now is never explicitly stated in the text that we encounter this week or in the upcoming weeks. But as we're soon going to see, the language used and the steps that are followed are congruent with ancient Hebrew wedding ceremony. And these parallels are intricately interwoven. And I'm going to simply go through the biggest and easiest correlations between these ceremonies to simply make my case. Also, please recognize that this partial only records the very beginning of this wedding ceremony. And in this ceremony, Moses is acting as the officiator, so to speak. The rest of the ceremony is concluded in the upcoming weeks, but we will be looking at those in the upcoming chapters. Now today as we go through this entire setup as a wedding, so that means not limiting myself to just this chapter. Doing this, it will help us to be able to hold this understanding as we go through these next few weeks. Now in a Hebrew wedding ceremony, the first thing that any good bride does is to get ready for the big day by washing herself and then applying makeup and doing her nails and her hair and getting dressed. This custom is as old as marriage itself. And the first thing in that sequence though is the bride washes herself. Now this has actually been institutionalized in the Jewish wedding ceremonies today with laws and blessings and regulations all accompanying this act. Now, if we're to understand the Torah given in Exodus as a ketuvah, then Exodus 19, 10-15 is the mikvah performed by Hashem's bride. In this passage, every person in Israel is ordered to be consecrated and washed in preparation for something, as well as to remain ritually pure for a period of three days preceding the ceremony. Once the mikvah is complete, then the commencement of the marriage ceremony is rather... Well, abrupt. Typically, the wedding would begin whenever the terms of the ketuvah were satisfied. 
Now, this might be once the bride price has been saved up, once the bride and groom's home was completed, or some other condition that was stated in the ketuvah was satisfied. Because the bride never knew when the wedding would come, the bride and her bridal party were always to be ready, waiting for the arrival of the bridegroom to collect his bride. Now, it's not to say that they didn't have a date when the wedding would occur, but they didn't know what time of day. Now, this is the background of Yeshua's parable in Matthew 25, 1-13. It was customary for one of the groom's party to go ahead of the bridegroom, leading the way to the bride's house and shouting, Behold, the bridegroom comes! And this would be followed by the sounding of a shofar, or a ram's horn. And we see this occurring in Exodus 19, 13, 16, and 19. Now, at any Jewish wedding, there's also a chuppah, a type of covering or a canopy. Exodus 19, 16-17 records a thick canopy or covering of cloud on Mount Sinai, which the Israelites stand under. Traditionally, the bride and the groom stand under the chuppah at the altar during the marriage ceremony, and this continues for seven days, the traditional time of the consummation of the marriage. Now, in the book of Exodus, this consummation occurs during the seven days at the base of Mount Sinai that are recorded in chapter 24. So, back to the events of the wedding itself, something that would occur in any Hebrew wedding was a reading of the marriage contract. In modern Judaism, this contract is called the ketuvah, which I've mentioned before. And a ketuvah in the ancient world was a marriage contract that would be drawn up when a couple was betrothed. The ketuvah would contain certain stipulations. One, the price that was to be paid for the bride. And we read this in Exodus 20, verse 2. Two, what must be accomplished by the groom before the wedding can occur. Example, the groom will create a place for her to join him in his house. And the tabernacle is an example of this, or the land of Canaan is an example of this. Three, the expectations that the husband will provide food, clothing, and conjugal visits to the wife. We read of this in Exodus 20, verse 8 through 11, and Exodus 21, 9 through 11. The stipulation that must be met before divorce. Now, while this isn't super clear here, Exodus 23, 24, and 32 through 33 could be said to fulfill the stipulation when read in light of what is said about the consequences of these actions in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Now, before the ketuvah is considered binding on the bride or the groom, both must reaffirm their agreement in front of all of the witnesses present at the wedding. Now, beginning here and continuing until Exodus 23, we will have ten commands, followed by the Book of the Covenant, as it's traditionally referred to, read in the hearing of all of Israel. And in Exodus 19, verse 8, and in Exodus 24, verses 3 and 7, the people of Israel affirm their covenant with God by saying, All that Hashem has spoken, we will do. Now, once before the ceremony begins and twice after the Book of the Covenant has been read in chapter 24, the people affirm their willingness to hold to this contract. Now, during the wedding, it's traditional for the bride and the groom to receive seven blessings. And likewise, in Exodus 23, verses 20 through 31, there are seven blessings given. After the ceremony, there's always a shared meal as part of the sealing of the covenant. Exodus 24, 9-11 record a meal where Aaron, Moses, and the seventy elders ascend the mountain and share a meal in Hashem's presence, just before the seven days of consummation under the chuppah at the base of the mountain. Now, as I stated earlier, there are more parallels between a Hebrew wedding ceremony and the events of these chapters than those that I've just listed. 
but what I've listed, I have done so to demonstrate that this event is indeed a wedding. It is this event that joins the people of Israel to Hashem, the God of creation. Now the question always comes up, the proverbial chicken or the egg? What came first, Exodus 19 or these wedding traditions? Well, we're going to find that through Scripture, this event spoken of here at Mount Sinai is referred to as a wedding. And this metaphor, that of God as the husband of Israel and wife, is one that's carried over throughout the pages of Scripture in great detail. Specifically, this metaphor is used repeatedly in the prophets to describe the relationship of God to his people. And there are many examples of this in the prophets, and we're just going to go through a few. For example, Isaiah 54, 4-8 through 8, says, Do not fear, for you shall not be put to shame nor hurt. You shall not be humiliated. For the shame of your youth you shall forget and not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. Hashem of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. For Hashem has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when you were refused, declares your God. For a little while I have forsaken you, but with great compassion I shall gather you. In an overflow of wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting chesed I shall have compassion on you, says Hashem, your Redeemer. In this chapter, Isaiah compares the upcoming exile of Israel to a marital dispute, a husband who's angry at his wife for her blatant disobedience, but then who later collects her back to himself out of his passion and compassion for her. Hosea uses this imagery not of God being a husband to Israel at the moment, but of Israel's relationship to Hashem shifting from that of master to slave or king to subject to a relationship of marriage. Hosea 2, 14-20 says, Therefore, see, I am alluring her, and shall lead her into the wilderness, and shall speak to her heart, and give to her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of expectation. And there she shall respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up out of the land of Mitzrayim. And it shall be in that day, declares Hashem, that you call me my husband, and no longer call me my Lord. And I shall remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by that name. And in that day I shall make a covenant for them, with the beasts of the field, and with the birds of the heaven, and with the creeping creatures of the ground, when bow and sword and battle I break from the earth, and I shall make them lie down in safety, and I shall take you as a bride unto me forever, and take you as a bride unto me in righteousness and in justice and in chesed, loving kindness, covenant loyalty, and compassion, and I shall take you as a bride unto me in trustworthiness, and you shall know Hashem. In this passage, it directly makes reference to the fact that in the day that Israel was brought out of Egypt, they responded to Hashem as a bride. The book of Hosea opens with this relationship very clear as Hosea is commanded to marry a prostitute as a sign to Israel of their own adulterous and idolatrous hearts. Jeremiah makes use of this imagery in multiple places throughout his book. Perhaps the most popular and most often referred to of Jeremiah being in chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. See, the days are coming, declares Hashem, when I shall make a renewed covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I strengthened their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares Hashem. For this is the covenant I shall make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Hashem. I shall put my Torah in their inward parts and write it on their hearts, and I shall be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall they teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, No, Hashem, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Hashem, for I shall forgive their crookedness and remember their sin no more. In fact, God begins his message to Jeremiah by recalling this relationship all the way back in Jeremiah 2, verses 1-3. through and the word of Hashem came to me, saying, Go, and you shall cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus said Hashem, I remember you, the covenant loyalty of your youth, the love of your bridehood, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land that was not sown. Israel was holy to Hashem, the first fruits of his increase. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares Hashem. And it was this relationship that was called upon earlier in the book to explain what it was that was occurring to Israel and Judah as they were being exiled. In Jeremiah 3, 6-10, it says, And Hashem said to me in the days of Yoshiahu the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there committed whoring. And after she had done all these, I said, Return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a certificate of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but went and committed whoring too. And it came to be through her frivolous whoring that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. And yet for all this her treacherous sister Judah was not turned to me with all her heart, but falsely, declares Hashem. And Ezekiel 16 tells a metaphorical story in which Israel is a woman, and Hashem raises her up and becomes her husband. Ezekiel 16, 8-14 says, And again I passed by you and looked upon you, and saw that your time was the time of carnal love. And I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness, and I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, declares the Master Hashem. And I washed you in water, and I washed off your blood, and I anointed you with oil, and I dressed you in embroidered work, and gave you sandals of leather, and I wrapped you in fine linen, and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments, and I put bracelets on your wrists, and a chain on your neck, and I put a ring on your nose, and earrings in your ears, and a crown of adorning on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil, and you were exceedingly beautiful and became fit for royalty. And your name went out among the nations because of your loveliness, for it was perfect by my splendor which I had put on you, declares the Master Hashem. Well, as we read on, we find out that Israel goes on to break this covenant of marriage that was in her youth, and is then cast out to live with the men that she committed adultery with. And then at the very end of this chapter, we read the same language as used in Jeremiah chapter 31. In Ezekiel 16, verses 59 through 60. For thus says the Master Hashem, I would deal with you as you have done, in that you have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. 
But I shall remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I shall establish an everlasting covenant with you. Each of these prophets compares the relationship of Hashem to Israel as a marriage. And then idolatry becomes steeped in the language of adultery, and exile is steeped in the language of divorce. And as we're going to see next week, even the Ten Commandments make this connection between adultery and idolatry. And so if we follow the chain of the, each of these prophetic comparisons of Hashem as a husband and Israel as a bride, we discover that they each recall the past, this past of exodus in this light, and then a distant future in which this metaphor would apply once again. So if we turn to the New Testament, we discover that the authors use the same imagery in their own texts. John the Baptist uses this imagery to describe Yeshua in John 3, John 3, 25-30. Then a dispute arose between some of John's taught ones and the Jews about cleansing. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have witnessed, see, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. And John answered and said, No man is able to receive any matter unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves are witnesses for me that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the voice of the bridegroom. So this joy of mine is complete. It is right for him to increase, but me to decrease. Paul uses this imagery to describe his desire that when the church is presented as a bride, that she should be wholly pure. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 3. I wish that you would bear with me in a little folly, but indeed you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a jealousy according to God. For I gave you in marriage to one husband to present you as an innocent maiden to Messiah. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by this treachery, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Messiah. And John speaks of the marriage ceremony that is yet to come in Revelation 19, 7-9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him praise, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife prepared herself. And to her it was given to be dressed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the holy ones. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who have been called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. These and so many more passages all speak on this kind of relationship as being a foundational principle of our relationship to our God. But the way that Scripture speaks of this metaphor in this current age, we are not the bride of Messiah yet. We are but betrothed to our bridegroom, and we are awaiting his return, which will be accompanied by the blast of a shofar and will culminate with him taking us to a new place to live with him. You see, there was something that occurred in the marriage process that I have not yet spoken of, and that is the betrothal. In the ancient Near East, the moment that the ketuvah was agreed upon by the fathers, the couple was, for all intents and purposes, considered husband and wife. Now they were not yet to the place where they had the ceremony and consummated the match and the woman moved into her husband's house, but they were considered married. The couple for this time between the betrothal and the marriage existed in a state of married, not yet married. 
The marriage was considered complete at the point of betrothal. So if a man died before the consummation and the woman moving into her husband's, usually her husband's father's home, the woman was considered a widow. Any infidelity at this point was considered adultery and a betrayal of covenant. And there was in the first century a lot of infidelity at this point. This usually took the form of two kids who wanted to have a fling with a love before settling down with an unknown husband or wife. But if discovered, this would lead to death of the offenders. Now this was so prevalent in the first century that the process of betrothal was shortened, and in many cases there was no waiting period. Instead, the betrothal and marriage would occur at the same time. It's actually an oddity that this type of marriage did not occur with Mary and Joseph. And it was into the situation, a betrothal that had not yet been consummated, that Yeshua was conceived into. The risk to Mary was very great once people found out about her pregnancy. Not only the risk of divorce, but the risk of death at the hands of her community. And if we follow the threads of the New Testament references to our relationship to Messiah as marriage, this is our own state of relationship to Messiah at this time. We are betrothed to him, considered for all intents and purposes to be married. And yet the process has not been completed. The marriage has not been consummated. The church has not yet moved into her husband's house. You know, the house with many rooms that our Messiah went to prepare for us? That house. But I think we can learn a lesson from this. Just as Mary conceived and bore the fruit of heaven while in this time of her life after she had an indwelling of the Holy Spirit, so too we who are betrothed to Yeshua are to bear the fruit of heaven in the interim. Any fruit that we bear that is of the world could be seen as adultery, the kind of adultery that Yeshua speaks of in Matthew 5, the lust that is equivalent to adultery. You see, we as humans, we have a first love. Our first love is our flesh. And we want to have a last fling with our flesh before the consummation of our marriage. But we are to avoid the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And this means even avoiding the thought of engaging in the things that bring forth the fruit of the flesh. 1 John 2, 16-17 says, Because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust of it, but the one doing the desire of God remains forever. And that's where we are now. We are in this place of now, not yet, in so many ways. I mean, we are immortal now, but we're not yet in our immortal bodies. We're part of the kingdom of God now, even though the fulfillment of the kingdom of God has not yet reached the earth. We are not to be of the world now, even though we are still in the world. And it's this tension that permeates the life of a believer. This now, not yet existence of this age. The betrothal stage of our life in Messiah. And this is what's described for us in the New Testament as the state that we currently occupy in our relationship to God. We are betrothed to Yeshua. We are the bride of Messiah. We are one with Him in purpose and in spirit. But this process is not yet complete. 
There will come a day when Israel once again enters fully into covenant with our bridegroom, and we will enter into a fuller experience of our Messiah. But for now, we wait in anticipation. We wait as the virgins waiting for the marriage supper, with lamps full, with anticipation, waiting for the sign of His coming to take us to be with Him in His kingdom. And this is what we seek for, the hope that we have at the end of this process of Deresh Chai, marriage to this land. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.